Welcome to episode four of the Asset Protection Podcast. My name is Wayne Patton. I'm an asset protection attorney, and I'm very happy to be hosting this series. Today, we're going to continue our discussion of offshore trusts, and in a future podcast, uh, probably the next one, we're going to discuss uh, Section 541 Special Power of Appointment Trusts, and those are trusts that are created under U.S. laws that I believe provide a very good level of asset protection especially for married couples. Um, as a quick side note, I want to mention that I am not an advocate of what's known as a domestic asset protection trust. And uh, these are trusts that are created in the 13 U.S. jurisdictions that have laws granting asset protection to self-settled trusts. Again, a self-settled trust is a trust where the trust creator or the person who sets up the trust is also the trust beneficiary. Uh, the reason I'm not an advocate of those types of trusts is very simply they are not tested. And the second reason is you have to have all of your assets inside of the jurisdiction that grants that protection. If your assets are in another state or you don't happen to live in one of those 13 states, then it's very unclear how much protection is going to be afforded to you, if any at all. So because these are untested in court and because they haven't been upheld and there's no real history of case law upholding these types of trusts and providing asset protection for them, I, I would be remiss if I advised you to set up one of these types of trusts for asset protection purposes. Unless you happen to live in a state that has the self-settled trust statute in place and all of your assets are in that state. If, if that's your situation, then maybe one of these can work for you. But for the vast majority of people that I serve, uh, that's just not an option. So today, let's continue our discussion of offshore trusts. A very quick recap. The biggest reason to consider offshore as a component of your asset protection plan is activist judges and results-oriented juries. We never know what a judge or jury is going to do. And we, the last thing we want is to be left in the hands of a talented theatrical trial attorney who is putting your life front and center before a jury and allowing that jury to make decisions about whether or not you should be held liable for something. Uh, that's just suicide. And that's the reason we want to have an asset protection plan in place. We want to give you a real hand in deciding what's fair. It's certainly not fair that you be an open target and open game for a plaintiff's attorney. So by having an asset protection plan in place, what you do is you create leverage for yourself to settle with these attorneys because they won't view you as an easy target. In the last podcast, we talked about some of the players uh, in an offshore asset protection trust. And today we're going to continue that discussion. We're going to get into a little bit more detail so you can understand how these things work. So, um, again, trusts are rooted in estate planning. And the purpose of a trust is to create uh, an entity that will survive you. It will be around longer than you are. And the idea is to pass on certain elements of assets to beneficiaries. Uh, trust has um, three components to it. It has a settler or trust creator, it has a trustee, and it has beneficiaries. Traditionally, a trust has, has three uh, players. 
in the context of asset protection, we add a few additional players as well, and, and we'll get into that a little later today. So the settler is you, and you are creating the trust, and you create the trust by entering an agreement with the trustee. And the agreement is the actual deed of trust or the trust document that dictates how the assets are supposed to be managed. So now this trust agreement becomes the law of the land. It, it advises and it guides and it governs the trustee and how he or she manages trust assets. The next thing that happens is you actually have to transfer some assets into the trust. And now, and once you do that, those assets are now under the control of the trustee. And then, of course, we have the beneficiary. And the beneficiary gets the beneficial use of the trust assets. If that's a distribution of income, then the income goes to the beneficiary. If it's uh, real property and uh, the beneficiary is supposed to be allowed to live on the real property in, in a home, then that is the benefit of the trust. So the beneficiary gets all of the beneficial use. The trustee has legal title and you are the person who's contributed all these things. In the context of an offshore asset protection trust, the offshore jurisdictions you'll want to consider for uh, the creation of an offshore trust will all have self-settled statutes in place. And these statutes provide asset protection for a self-settled trust. A self-settled trust is one where the trust creator and the trust beneficiary are the same person. Traditionally in the United States, there is no asset protection provided for a self-settled trust. But there are several offshore jurisdictions that do provide that protection. And again, I mentioned there are 13 U.S. states that provide that protection as well. And so as a policy matter, it's very difficult to argue that asset protection and that protection for self-settled trusts is something that's impermissible or somehow immoral. Uh, I mean, 13 U.S. states have adopted it as law, so it's very hard to argue against that. So the way an offshore trust is created is uh, the offshore jurisdictions typically require that an offshore trustee or a person who resides in the offshore jurisdiction act as a trustee. And trustees can be, um, uh, trustees can come in all sorts of different varieties. So you can have a trustee that's charged with managing assets or charged with investing assets. You can have a separate trustee that's charged with just making distributions of assets. So we can, remember in the very first podcast, we talked about property being a bundle of rights. Well, you can uh, parse the bundle of rights as, you know, as finely as you want to, and you can, you can allocate different rights to different trustees. What I tend to like to do is I don't want trusts to be offshore trusts from day one. I want them to be U.S.-based trusts that are portable, that can be moved offshore. And the reason is that having an offshore trustee from day one is a very expensive proposition. Uh, the minimum fee you're going to find on an annualized basis for an offshore trustee is about $3,500. In addition to that, once you have an offshore trustee that's governing the trust document, um, or that's you know governed by the trust document, you now have a foreign trust, and that triggers all kinds of IRS reporting requirements that are also very expensive. So if you have a, a purely foreign or purely offshore trust, you can expect to spend... Um, anywhere from seven dollars to $10,000 a year just to maintain that trust. In some cases, 
that doesn't represent a, a lot of money for some people. So it's worth it because having the offshore trust, there are some definite benefits to that. Once it's offshore and once your assets are actually in the trust or, or once the trust is funded, it becomes very ironclad and virtually impossible to penetrate. Uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission went down to the Cook Islands and tried to penetrate one of these trusts. And in that case, the people who set up the trust, the Andersons, and we'll talk more specifically about the Anderson case in a future podcast, those folks had acted in a very egregious nature, and the U.S. federal government couldn't even go down there and penetrate the trust. So these things work very well when they're offshore. What I've found is that you can get a very high degree of protection with a portable trust. And that's a trust that is based in the United States, but has language written into it that allows the trust to move offshore in the event that you face potentially catastrophic litigation. And I want to talk about uh, what the mechanisms are and how those mechanisms work in order to move a trust offshore, in order to trigger it or port it or bridge it offshore. Um, before we do that, I want to introduce one more character into the trust creation equation, and that is the trust protector. The protector is an individual or a company that serves the trust with veto powers. So it works like this. The trust protector does not have affirmative powers. So the trust protector can't make a distribution. The trust protector can't change provisions of the trust. The, truck, the trust protector doesn't make investment decisions. What the trust protector can do is veto certain actions. So in the typical case of a trust for one of my clients, the, the client is the trust creator or the settler, and the client will probably also want to be the trustee, and the client will probably also want to be the beneficiary. Well, we know that under the laws of the U.S. in the vast majority of states, there's no asset protection for a trust like that. So on day one, it's not an asset protection trust. There's no law that's protecting it. But the trust will have built into it provisions that say if any trustee faces an event of duress, and that could be a catastrophic lawsuit, it could be a creditor claim, it could be anything that would threaten the assets inside of the trust, then the protector can remove that trustee that's facing an event of duress, and a special successor trustee will step into that trustee's shoes. Now, it just so happens that the special successor trustee we've appointed is a trustee in an offshore jurisdiction. So as soon as this new trustee steps into the original trustee's shoes, the trust moves, and all of the assets inside of the trust move as well. And if those assets aren't offshore to begin with, they can be upstreamed or, or um, wired into a new offshore account in the case of liquid assets, or if the assets are real property or other assets that can't be moved, uh, we can do what's called equity stripping to make those assets very unde undesirable for anyone who would be suing you. So the, the trust protector is a player who has a critical role to play, and this is, has to be a person or a business uh, who is used to operating while under fire because when the trust protector is most important is when you're facing a, a claim and that person has to make the critical decisions to remove you as trustee and to appoint the offshore trustee. But even after that happens, 
there's a very critical role for the trustee or for the protector to play, and that is the veto power. So the veto power is such that if you don't like what the offshore trustee is doing, and I can tell you that in all my years as an asset protection attorney, I've never had an offshore trustee behave badly, so to speak, or to do anything that the client didn't want to be done or, or act in anything other than the best interest of the client. Uh, the people I work with in offshore jurisdictions are professionals, and they hold themselves to a very high standard of conduct. So I've never had a situation where an offshore trustee has acted badly. But as a check against acting badly, the, the protector can veto any actions that the trustee takes. So um, to think about why it's important for the, for the protector to have only veto powers is because if the protector happens to be in the United States, then the protector is subject to the laws of the United States of America and subject to the jurisdiction of U.S. courts. But if the trust document says that the protector can only veto actions, then there's nothing affirmative that the protector can do that, that could cause your assets to be repatriated to the United States. I hope this is making sense because... I understand that it's very complicated and it's a difficult subject to wrap your head around, um, but it's really important that you understand how this works. And I want to introduce now another player in the trust equation because um, we can add and take away these players. The, the only absolutely required um, elements of a trust are that it, have, uh, it has to have a settler, it has to have someone who creates it. It has to have a trustee, it has to have a beneficiary, and there has to be something that is held in trust, so some property that's held in trust. The protector is an optional player, and we can also add an investment advisor, and this can be a person who gives the trustee investment advice, how you want the assets of your trust to be managed, what you want them to be invested in, how you want them to be allocated or diversified. And you can be the investment advisor of the trust, even if the trust has been moved offshore. And that means you have the trustee's ear. You can say, trustee, I want you to invest in these certain companies, or I want you to subscribe to this private placement, or I want you to buy these pieces of real estate. And the trustee will follow those investment uh, directions. Uh, so that's another player, the investment advisor, in addition to the protector. So these are how uh, these players are the way that you can maintain control over your trust assets and have the beneficial use of your trust assets while it's offshore, after you've technically been removed as the trustee. And remember I said earlier, we can also parse the trustee powers. So if you wanted somebody else other than the offshore trustee to have uh, certain powers over management, we could do that. We could just leave the offshore trustee with the power to make distributions. And we could give another trustee the power to make investments or the power to do uh, whatever it is you want that person to be able to do with the trust assets. Remember, uh, property is a bundle of rights. And what we're doing is we're giving certain rights to certain people. Uh, some people have the right to control. Some people have the right to convey ownership. Other people have the right to use and to enjoy the assets. That is always gonna be you. You are always going to be the person who has the right to use and enjoy the assets that are held in trust because you're the beneficiary. So 
the, the obvious question is, well, what happens if a creditor wants you to turn over the beneficial use of your assets? Uh, say your trust has a million bucks in it and is generating income, and the, your creditor says, well, I want to intercept that income. Okay, well, the trustee now is not going to make distributions of income to you because a court has ordered that those are going to go to your creditor. So what will the trustee do? Well, the trustee can pay your Amex bills directly. The trustee can pay your mortgage directly, your car payments directly. The trustee will make sure that the trust assets benefit you and only you. So one question that we get very often is uh, about contempt of court. So what happens when the court says, listen, uh, we want you to turn over the asset. We want you to force a repatriation of the assets to the United States of America so that they can be given to your creditor. Well, a court can only order you to do something that is within your power to do. And the way that I create these offshore trust documents is I write them so that any order that you give to the trustee to repatriate assets to the U.S. must be accompanied by a statement that you sign under a penalty of perjury that says, I have not been ordered by a court to repatriate these assets. Now, one thing is for certain under the law of the United States of America, and that is a court cannot order you to lie under oath. So in effect, what you've done is, or in effect, what we've done by creating trusts this way and with these provisions is we've eviscerated the ability of the court to force you to repatriate your assets. Now, uh, there have been some cases where, or one case that I know of, where the IRS has aggressively hounded a, an individual who has been getting the benefits of her offshore trust for a very long time. And in this particular case, we're talking about assets that are um, in the multi tens of millions of dollars, where there are tens of millions of dollars that are owed to the IRS. And the court, after years and years of trying to figure out how to um, get at these assets, has finally written the broadest possible order, which basically says no assets can come into the United States and nobody can help you bring assets into the United States and nobody can, and no assets can be paid for your benefit from this offshore trust. So, you know, that is the absolute worst case scenario. It's taken years for the court to get to that point. And this particular person has two choices. And you can look this up. This is called the Arlene Grant case. And this person has two, two choices, right? This person can either move to a foreign jurisdiction. They can, she can move to another country that won't recognize the judgment of a U.S. court. And, and then she can use her, you know, millions and millions of dollars that are in this offshore trust. Or she can use whatever assets she has at her disposal now, and when she dies, her children will be able to enjoy these trust assets free and clear because they don't owe the tax bill. They don't owe the money that um, this woman's husband owed on these assets. Whether or not that will happen or whether or not there are going to be some technicalities or some different arguments brought forth by the IRS will remain to be seen. Uh, that's what I think is one potential outcome. It's not the only outcome, but certainly it's a potential outcome. The moral of the story 
is this. It is very difficult for a creditor to get that result. We're talking about the IRS, which is known in, in the world of asset protection as an absolute super creditor. And the IRS has spent a lot of time, effort, and money to get that result. I can almost guarantee you that um, no other private creditor would go to that length and to that expense to try to realize a judgment against you or to try to prohibit you from bringing assets into this country or to try to prohibit an offshore trustee from, uh, from using assets for your benefit by paying your mortgage, by making your car payment, by paying your Amex bill. I just want to give you the worst case scenario, and that's the case where the IRS is the creditor. Uh, very rarely does that happen, and uh, very rarely will you face consequences like that. Um, you know, if you just have a normal creditor that's a you know a civilian, so to speak, and not a super creditor. Super creditors include entities like the IRS, as mentioned before, the SEC, the Federal Trade Commission, and like I said earlier in this podcast, the, the Federal Trade Commission even went down to the Cook Islands, and the Cook Islands essentially uh, kicked the FTC out of court. So uh, federal regulatory agencies typically are regarded as super creditors, but even then, these asset protection trusts have proven to be uh, very effective in the face of claims even from those people. Uh, you know, the IRS has, to my knowledge, not received a dime from the offshore trust uh, in the Arlene Grant case. So the ball is in Arlene Grant's court now, whether she moves offshore, you know, whatever it is she decides to do, um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But what you know now, and, and hopefully what you're taking away from this podcast, is that you can retain a very high degree control, a very high degree of control over your assets that are inside of an asset protection plan. You can give yourself the ability to move those assets offshore even after you get sued, as long as your plan is properly formed and funded before the claim exists. And once those assets are offshore, you can live free from worry about contempt of court as long as your plan is created properly with somebody who knows what they're doing because there are a lot of asset protection planning attorneys or quote-unquote asset protection planning attorneys or promoters out there who don't know these technical rules, who don't know how to keep you out of hot water and how to keep you out of contempt of court. And you can still have the beneficial use and enjoyment of your assets. So that is really the moral of this podcast. That's what I'm really trying to get across to you, that you can have your cake and eat it too in the context of an offshore asset protection planning trust. In the next podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about um, a particular type of uh, domestic trust that I like to use for asset protection planning purposes. It's called a 541 Special Power of Appointment Trust, and uh, it can achieve some, some pretty good asset protection results for married couples um, if you're not a married couple, there can be some tax consequences to the way that it works. Um, by and large, if you have the ability and you have the resources uh, to create a portable offshore asset protection trust, that's the way that I recommend most of my clients go. Uh, if you don't have the resources to be able to build and maintain one of those, then uh, you know the, the Section 541 Special Power of Appointment Trust is a pretty good second alternative 
And, um, and we're going to talk more about that in the next podcast. I want to thank you for joining me today. Please visit my website, which is www.mwpatton.com. That's M like Mike, W like whiskey, Patton, P-A-T-T-O-N.com. Uh, sign up for my newsletter or just um, you know spend a little time on my website. There's a lot of information there. And if you have additional questions, give me a call. I love to hear from people that are interested in asset protection, and I, and I really like to talk about this topic. So I'd be, uh, I'd be happy to hear from you. Uh, thank you again for your time and attention today, and I look forward to seeing you on episode number five.